outside my friend Fox. This is the 187th episode of Space Spinner 2000. Oh, God. Oh, no. I'm joined today by the man himself, Conrad Bubik. This week, we're <laughs> going to do a bit of a review, a review of the previous episode. I'm curious what you think of the episode so far. How do you feel about the world, the politics, or the, or the direction of the show so far? We were actually going to start out with a review of episode 99. That would be a good place to start. This last episode of Space Spinner 2000 was an episode of the series. This was an episode about a story. It was a very long story. It is a story about the world of space exploration and the future of mankind in space and the human race. Keep going. Keep it rolling. That, that's all there was. Yes. <laughs> It's just so good. It's just so good. I use uh, a, a well, well, FYI, I used a I, I used a, a text generator to uh to based on the first sentence of the show to uh make something and that's what it made, FYI. The uh, second half of the dialogue was by Conrad Bubeck himself, whoever that is. Well how much uh well how much time do you have? You've got a week maybe? A week? Yeah, they call they call me Bubeck. Uh, <laughs> Conrad Bubeck. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it was so genius. I love I love computers. Anyway, we're also doing uh, 2000 AD for August and September 1988, Progs 587 to 590. And uh, this time 2000 AD is going big. More pages, a full color dread, and a record 10 different thrills. It's bad times for Fox and Conrad, but good times for everybody else. As Skip it. Rogue Trooper slain and Zenith return. You don't have to skip this episode, but you can literally skip everything we've read other than a few things, which I guess is sort of the point of the show. <laughs> yeah. Come on, buddy. Um, if, you, if you want to read along with us, you'll find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dread, the Complete Case Files 12 and Great. the Daily Dreads Volume 2, mm-hmm. Nemesis the Warlock Volume 3. Wonderful. Strong Team Dog, SCHU Files 4. All right. S- Slain the King, Great. Zenith Phase 2, mm. Rogue Trooper Tales of New Earth 3, <laughs> and 2080 Extreme Editions 14, you son of a bitch. Uh, yeah, those those are the bad ones, but not all of the bad ones. <laughs> Conrad <laughs> Fox getting angry. I, like, there had to be a bad month, right? Eventually. Emotions, emotions press the breaking point. Okay. Oh, my God. I'm so, I'm just going to be salty. This whole episode, I had to read, like, 90% of this was, okay, maybe not 90, 70% of this was pretty much trite. Oh, no. Well, maybe something that, that might, so let's start out with something that, that might be okay. I'm interested to see what you think with... Through one, Nemesis the Warlock. Half of it was confusing, the other half was interesting, most of it was beautiful. Yeah, that feels right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> script robot Pat Mills, art robot John Hinklinton, lettering robot Steve Potter. So, Deathbringer! Oh Nemesis my God. the Warlock is the I'm so excited. This art's pretty dope. I like a lot of how uh, we deal with black in this episode. There, a lot of blackness in Hinklinton's art in general in this period, and I think maybe in general, actually. That's um, good. Just the writing's yeah. like what, especially this first part. I was, I did not know what was going on because I'm old and I don't understand something from 1988. Well, I'll say, Fox, as we're as we're recording this, I'm still in the in the in the afterglow of having watched um, all the Friday the Thirteenth <laughs> movies in, so, a, in like a 24 hour period. So this is quite real. 
This feels very familiar to me just as the start of a horror movie where things are kind of chaotic and it's like a teen party kind of thing going on, you know? Yeah, I didn't get the thing where everyone – where there was a guy asking to pee to call his mom. But also there was a guy with a backwards cap that said exploit on it. So, you know. Indeed. Yeah, so it's a typical Friday night with young people typical. making out and a girl named Jenny who's wandering around asking to, to get a 10 pence from people so she can call her mom in the hospital. And it seems like she's definitely getting money from her friends but keeps asking people for more and more 10 pences. Which, um, you know, you got to buy that yeah. 2000 AD somehow. somehow. Indeed. Yes, price is going up, man. At least one of these other girls accuses her of actually asking for the money for some dude named Stuart, even and though he's straight up her. says, "Bitch, please." Exactly, and uh, but it seems that he might be using her because he just split with Big Mary or whatever. And I mean, she's but cute, just, but you know, he's got yeah, his all type. this feels. Feels very high school or sort of like late teens, early 20s kind of thing, right down to a dad who's just shown up at this makeout <laughs> house looking for his daughter. Maybe the only character in the entire first issue of this whole thing. I like this. I, I like the exchange, though, just because he, he said he talked to some punk and he's like, excuse what are you me, I'm looking for my of? daughter. Yeah, that's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so we we see Jenny giving the money she got to Stuart. So that bitch was right. And <laughs> He's looking <laughs> e extremely handsy, as they say in England, but he needs money for rent, I guess. I'm not like – this feels like some British rooming thing where you can get pocket change and have enough to have a place to stay for the night, which and is not also my experience And also they feed in, in the you, US. but the only thing he's got is toast. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like a bad deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it depends on who your landlord is, I guess. I mean, listen, um, dude, I'll eat all the toast I can get if I am fucking need pence for a fucking house. Mm. Jenny really likes Stuart as they head back to his place and he talks to his landlord, who's apparently some kind of giant skinhead, and he has to move in four weeks again or or uh, um, he or else get himself uh, declared insane. I'm not sure here. Specifically, um, it's Tom's bed and breakfast. Yeah, which I, which I get, thought was great because his name is actually Torque. Indeed. Ugh. Yeah, and I mean it's a weird thing where um, what you call it? Like I, I could not verify this, but it seems like maybe in late eighties uh, England, bed and breakfast had a much different connotation than, than it does in the United States. Yeah, no. But, this is like a, this is not a quaint seaside mansion in which you're paying. Less than exorbitant amounts, but at least that you get some tea and some breakfast from some people who make it, who are the people who own the house. It's more of like a, a skinhead runs this place and you just got to yes. pay rent. Skinhead flop house with toast. Um, <laughs> Terrifying. But, but so they get out of the way of some reapers, these dudes on black motorcycles, again, with that checkerboard pattern I'm pointing out a lot in the course mm -hmm, of the story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They must be headed to a big shakedown somewhere, but Jenny doesn't want to talk about them because apparently she used to uh, live in the Blackstead estate where I guess a big purge was. Whoops. They're, yeah, they arrive at Stewart's place, as you said, Tom's bed and breakfast, where the landlord seems to be a big jerk, and it's Torquemada! And, whoa, this so uh this girl kind of looks like uh, my wife that I killed. She looks like uh, Candida. That's pretty great. She looks like my ex-wife from the far future. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm going into this, uh, this, you know, she's like a teen. Maybe she's in college. Yeah. I don't know. 
And remember, Candida isn't dead. She's just uh, committed to an insane asylum and all that stuff. Oh, that's um, true. That's true. She didn't become juice yet. No. Uh, so the next day at college, Jenny is getting a salad as she gossips with her friends. She's still freaked out by meeting Torquemada last night, but apparently he wants to meet her again. And here he is looking extremely disturbing in a tank top with a hole in the middle of it. Like, Which is what we saw on Nemesis. Is this like a thing? Like a- I think there's generally a thing where like I haven't really read this, but something like I feel like. Hinklinton might be pl- like okay if if I want to really ascribe a lot to him, <laughs> he really I'd likes say, to have her male body, or he's like playing with comic book gender norms or something like that. I'm all right really, with that. He really does dress both Torquemada and Nemesis in costumes that you would put like a attractive on, comic book yeah, lady, lady in to have like one of those like back breaking like a Liefeld design uh, you know uh, stances and stuff like that and she's I mean mind you the not candida in this has like a leather jacket over his skirt just a you know I think a a quite classy not greaser but like kind of an art student but you know I mean they all yeah kind of gothy also yeah Yeah, but like a lot of the women wear like 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 heavy leather jackets and other stuff like that and Uh, our male hero and yeah, and our and our heroes do seem to trend more towards like belly shirts with strategic holes in them and stuff like that, which is weird, a, a, an, an interesting stance. And and what I will argue at the end of this is uh, order and chaos are not so different after all. They're just sexy men with you know very differing opinions. I don't. I just. I don't care about this discussion. Um, <laughs> J- Jenny wants Stuart to stay. But he's gonna, but 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 he's going to uh, to dump his girlfriend, Big Mary, and Torquemada shows up and lays it out. All right, and I like this part because he says, like, listen, I'm from the future. I'm the Grandmaster of a Galactic Empire. I want you to come back to the future with me to be my Grandmistress. All right, which is basically the best kind of come on that I guess you could get. Right, like it's better than saying I've got a yacht, but it's actually just my parents' like motorboat that I have parked in. I mean, it's, like outside it's the liter- garage. It's literally true. You know, yeah, <laughs> he's actually being quite truthful. And she's like, bitch, are you for real? Yeah, she doesn't seem into it since she excused herself because she's got to study for her A-levels. Which that might have been for high school, but also this part of the English of a British education is confusing to me. I did read Harry Potter. I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, there's there's something going on here that feels profoundly out of reach of us as Americans. Uh, yeah. Like, comment, subscribe if uh, you would like to tell us why we don't understand something. They do. Believe me. <laughs> uh, me- meanwhile, it seems Reapers are fighting desperately against our gal, Purity Brown. Which is the only woman in this whole thing who is wearing something revealing. Uh, finally. She she takes <laughs> down a bunch of them, but eventually gets taken out. But before she can be executed, the orders change. and She's taken to Reaper HQ to meet the Colonel. They Someone suspiciously in a Judge Dredd kind of helmet. Indeed. They bring her down a long hallway to a large white room where we meet the leader of the Reapers. It's Torquemada again! Oh my god, it's that guy that I just met who's just a weird fucking guy. Two comics in a row where, it's, where the reveal has been, it's Torquemada! <laughs> I, but this time, <laughs> I do he's, like that. He's, <laughs> he's in a neat black and white suit with giant shoulder pads with more of those checkerboards. Hey, you know, he's still a skinhead, but at the very least, he's a skinhead with a job. And in government, no less. Yeah, that's um, true. 
even what worse in some yeah. cases. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> Nemesis is wandering the streets of London. He's fascinated by these humans, but in the way that, you know, you or I might be interested in an ant farm or things like that. Especially if he wanted to, like, smash those ants because they had a tattoo on their head. Yeah. He's, uh... So, you know, he's wandering the streets. He's he's looking extremely Highlander in a big old trench coat, like some worsted padding on the inside. No shirt on, breaking his mother's heart. Mm. But, you know, again, just got a very sort of, uh, no, what's that guy's name? Neck throat. Uh, no, Christopher Lambert kind of oh, look. Oh, no. Wandering these streets. <laughs> That's so uh, true. Especially again, in like the all black, like, it's just my face. Yeah. That, that was very but, Lambert. But even though the ABC Warriors were able to fix the black hole bypass, we st- we're still see ripples in time, apparently off in the form of these crazy monsters appearing in London, fought by skinheads organized by Torquemada. Oi, 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 deviants out! I love that they're called oi boys later, by the way. Indeed, we see a trio of jerks with uh, the be pure, be, be, uh, uh be vigilant, behave, like kind of. Thank you very much. Scrawled with, onto their head with those with things knife. T- tattooed onto their foreheads. I forgot what they were for a second. Shameful! Um, How dare but you? They're killing some of these time aliens, just minding their own business. And Nemesis in human form is not having it. Comes out with this frog throat. He's gonna be a guy now and say the same thing that we always have known: "It's Lord of Flies, the shape of things to come." And you know what? I'm gonna give you wet dreams. Uh, sorry, I mean the one who waits. On the edge of your dreams, he's going to wait till you start edging. Well, Jesus Christ. <laughs> hey, come on. Be respectful here, buddy. I but can't yeah, help he's, it. He's so hot right now. We see a pretty cool. Yeah, we see a pretty cool part where there's a mostly black panel. It's just his angry human face. Then he takes off his coat and morphs into the warlock with his various names and things like that. He twists his body around and attacks. He kills both. Be pure. Be vigilant right away. And then gets behaved with a slime ball. He is the Deathbringer. And, you know, feels uh, like what I liked about this. He's like, I uh, gave him with a slime ball. Seems appropriate. Dude's a gross ah, ass skinhead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. A baby in a ghostly face look out over the city as Turkomata talks oh, to Tyranny. It is a creepy <laughs> image. Again, giving full salute to Hinklinton here because he makes some hoo boy imagery. Yeah, he will mess you up. Yeah, so Torquemada explains the deviant isn't at the door, he's inside, and that Torquemada himself was the last hope. He explains that when reality broke down, he was given extraordinary powers by the government to handle it, and we see on the wall there's a picture of Margaret Thatcher at like a Reaper's convention in front of a big checkerboard. Is this like a pre-Tim and Morty? Or whatever, Tim and Morty? Rick and, Rick Morty? and Morty? There we go. That's what I'm trying to say. Rick and Morty stole from this comic book. Nothing is original. Hate your parents and hate anybody who makes art. Everybody's a deviant. Yeah, I mean, you know, fair enough. Although, you know, some of us are are also time-traveling monsters, you know, like, objectively. I mean, some of uh, us. Definitely not you and me. We are not time-traveling monsters. You and I. No. Specifically. Barely ever time-travel. Um... (laughs) So, um, Torquemada and Purity spar verbally a bit, but then Torquemada plays his trump card, which causes Purity to remember the events of Purity's story, <gasps> of Purity's story, and instantly turns her against Nemesis. Though, of and course, they have that. A hug. Well, yeah, although she doesn't necessarily, um, excuse Torquemada of his crimes. Nah, but that doesn't mean he can't just forcibly embrace her into his armpit, you know? Definitely. 
It, well, I mean, listen, he's a Hinklinton guy. He's got a lot of armpit for the record. Um, <laughs> it is so, pretty. Oof, don't get in there. <laughs> yeah. Turkamata shows her around. Uh, apparently, he's connected to multiple realities, all of them being attacked and sometimes overrun and conquered by attacking dimensional aliens. He has to pause and talk to the prime minister and then heads to his car with Puri to show her what they're up against. And she sees these murderous aliens living in, or at least gross looking aliens living inside the Black Shed estate. Uh, faced with the truth that these monsters are the future that Nemesis wants, Purity seems to have no choice. Torquemada is the only hope for humanity, and she collapses into his arms, born again. I mean, maybe. I feel like it's uh, it's under over on this one. What a Purity actually having con- having left Nemesis is converted to ne- to Torquemada's side. Nah, nah. It's possible. I mean, I, mean we def- I, would, I would love it if that happened just because some plot would happen. I am not yet convinced. I mean, we definitely see seen purity be incredibly turned off and basically like uh, like try to leave Nemesis or, or, or say that she hates him and will try to kill him after learning about the events of Purity's story, both when she first experienced it and then after remembering it um, in, 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 a, in the previous book. So the fact that she's now got it in her head without Nemesis to immediately erase it from her mind means that she definitely could be falling in that direction. Sure. I just suppose it's like, you know, we've I like the the feeling that I got is that she would push herself away from all of these people and just kind of do her own mm-hmm. thing. If she's just going to kind of ping pong between these two guys, which leads me to my as I push the glasses up my nose, you know, quite honestly, they're both kind of the same guy. They're both mm. incredibly gross. One is order and one is chaos. You know, an order is is just as disgusting as chaos. I don't know, <sighs> man. Once is once a slime spitting alien. That's what I'm trying to say. And one is a fucking disgusting skinhead. That's true. And he's got some some a uh, nose business that's no good yeah, going on as well. You know, ugh. <laughs> And, uh, hey, speaking of uh, religious and government guys you can't trust, Fox. Oh, uh, what, like all of them? What do you want yeah. me to say here? <laughs> Thrill to Strontium Dog. And the only unfortunate thing about Strontium Dog in this episode is that there was only one episode. Oh, nice. Well, I'm glad you we've turned the corner on it a little bit at I, least. I've turned um, a little bit. That doesn't mean that I enjoy the giant boils on someone's head, but definitely <laughs> means that, like... You know, I mean the yeah, you know the end. Yeah, we'll get. Oh, there. definitely. Yeah, so script about Alan Grant, art about Simon Harrison, lettering about Tom Frame. Dougal, the dog of mutant bounty hunter bitten face McNulty, has been killed, seemingly by Brother Sagan, the uh, the man McNulty and his co-worker Johnny Alpha have been hired to protect. Oh no! Oh, poor pups. Even though I yeah. didn't like him so much, that doesn't mean you can kill a puppy dog. Sorry, Listen, man. I didn't like Dougal as a dog, but as a dog, I also, um, you know, accept any swears of vengeance to uh, to avenge him. Oh, yeah. Um, I, like, <laughs> quite honestly, John Wick this shit. Exactly. Binface swears revenge and goes to bury his dog, but it's been booby-trapped and explodes! Oof. No one likes an exploding dog. That's worse than just killing a dog. Seriously, although it would have also shorted up those Keanu Reeves movies, I'm trying to say. Um <laughs> 
Four hours later, the dropship comes down and Brother Sagan is there to meet it. When the pilot asks what happened to the others, Sagan kicks the pilot out of the ship and uh, runs off with it. Though he does toss the pilot a stack of cash at him, after him, basically just saying he wants the dogs to know that, you know, to be paid in full. Ooh, uh, okay. Elsewhere, the dogs are coming too and getting really pissed about Sagan, especially when they see that their buddy Boar was stabbed to death by Sagan's holy switchblade. You know, I feel like uh, <clears throat> hindsight on this one. Maybe just let the guy die and don't leave the fact that you definitely did this in his chest. Maybe take that with yeah. you. Well, I mean, I'd say that him leaving the knife behind, like the fact that he uh, trapped Duel with a concussion grenade, means that he didn't want to kill them, but instead wanted to, like, leave a message, basically. He was telling them things by, by doing this stuff. How does he not know who these guys are? Do you just contract he, them without doing any sort of reading? I think he does know who they are. And Ooh. that's why – and so he's trying to be extremely – like he's just styling on these dudes, you know. He's like a like a common Ric Flair just like doing a move and then strutting around the ring because of it even as the guy he did the move on then stands back up and like stands behind Ric Flair. And Ric Flair should be like, woo, 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 like dancing around. And the big guy's like – like, like taps him on the shoulder and Ric Flair turns around and he's like, oh, no, what have I done? I you appreciate know, kind of this uh, this wrestling Sorry, this has been Excuse Conrad's me. wrestling moment. Excuse I, me. No, I appreciate it. It's like my Star Trek <laughs> moments. <laughs> but so, okay, Fox, let's get back to this here. Um, so, yeah, so like, yeah, he, he had a, a concussion grenade. He didn't want to kill him and said, um, you know, it must have been something crazy about those bones. But Sagan does owe them one and they mean to collect. Oh, I mean, they're going to beat his ass, Seabass. Yeah. At New Salisbury Earth, Sagan has returned to his mother. And uh, these relics will make their country great again. Uh-oh. Oh. And put paid to Johnny Alpha and all mutant kind. What are the relics? Buddy, it's the bones of magician Malik Brood. Oh, I shoot. owe you one Malik Brood corpse. <laughs> Indeed. You will remember Malik Brood as the evil space wizard from the Moses incident in Frog 335. The very space wizard that you're taking a child's corpse to, which necessitates an IOU. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he paid his mom in full. Here's this yeah. uh, Here's this wizard corpse. Enjoy the zombie kid. The end of Strontium Dog. Oh, my God. Um, coming soon. Again, the final solution, which has not been the mm. first time, nor I imagine the last time that they will use that title. Definitely a title not chosen in vain is what I'll say. And that <gasps> oh, will be no. back in Prague 600. Oofa, tufa. Oof. So pretty close from now, actually. I think like uh, two episodes pretty, or two Prague episodes from now. Pretty, pretty good. Like I, again, like Strontium Dog for all of its for its warts and all, like bulbous, disgusting warts on the head of Midden Face McNulty. You know, <laughs> I'm getting into it. Like now, I'm definitely into it. I mean, you bring it, but Child Corpse again, I'm in. Child Corpse, sort of um, adjacent at this point, but indeed. <laughs> The re yeah, the uh, the return of Malik Brood is very interesting. Just what the, you know, what are they? What are you going to do with necro with a space necromancer bones? I guess we'll find out. I mean, especially when you're a question mark Jesus cult. Absolutely. And hey, speaking of uh, messianic figures, Fox. Oh my God. Speaking of of uh, brightening up your day, Fox. Oh. Speaking of us somewhere. Oh. 
over the tread bow. <sighs> All right, uh, come on, hey, Brain. Judge Dredd. <laughs> Jesus H. Joseph and Mary. <laughs> Script robot Alan Grant and John Wagner, art robot Barry Kitson and John Ridgway, letter robot Tom Frame. My boy. Barry Kitson starts us out on art as a couple walks to a secluded area to make out as a shadowy figure stalks them. Meanwhile, the narration talks about the different parts of the brain, the cerebrum for higher thought, yeah, the limbic system, yeah. the mammal brain, the brain stem, the reptile uh, brain. There we go. I want me a reptile man. Or is that yeah. what it's called them? Reptoids or reptilian shadow government figures? Well, I mean, the reptoids and the reptilians are, of course, arrayed against are um both arrayed arrayed against each other. They're enemies, of but, course. Um, you know, both also have have at least some level of control of the U.S. government. Fox, absolutely, well, it's true. That's why all of the wars have ever been right. That's right. Most natural disasters are actually portals of raptors or reptoids opening up in various places. They go in, eat a bunch of people, and then we they, we call them hurricanes or earthquakes to cover them up, just FYI. Or natural well, – well, unnatural disasters. Lone wolf snipers, reptoids. They'll kill you for chocolate. Anyway. They're delicious. People are delicious, and I am not a reptoid or a reptilian. Hashtag not a reptilian. Yeah, definitely not me. Get no, out of here. No. Um, anyway. <laughs> anyway, there's a lizard dude killing people it's in Mega great. City One Fox. Meanwhile, Dread, we, we see Dread in the midst of letting a perp go to the bathroom so he doesn't shit on Dread's bike seat. <laughs> but he hears a scream and comes running, leaving that perp behind out on the street to Screaming, just please let me take disgrace himself. Oh no. Dread's in pursuit and rides up on that lizard dude on his bike. He opens fire but misses it first because the lizard's fast. Yeah, the lizard's fast pretty enough. quick. But then you shoot yeah. it right in the butt tail. <laughs> this is classic uh, uh, comic book fight. He's fast. That's a good, good anime moment, mm. you know, when someone's about to kick your ass. Um, <laughs> So a Dreadman, yeah, he he wings the beast and calls it in, thinking it might be one of the Gila Munga who we, we, we saw a, a, a while ago. I enjoy this mm. callback because I know what that means. Yeah, they're these crab-armed assassin monsters from the Cursed <laughs> Earth. <laughs> really not like a normal thing that you would think would work, but, you know, they Pretty are. Good. I thought it was good. Uh, the lizard monster hides above the rooftop and turns. It's time to take out Dread because the law of the jungle, kill or be killed, etc., Dredge in pursuit when, when suddenly a giant with lizard tail whips out of the shadows and hits him in the face and he drops his gun. We see the lizard going hog wild on Dredge, <laughs> just stabbing and biting him and stuff. But the canny lawman uses some sweet judo moves and flip the, flips the monster off the side of the rooftop to its death. I mean, the only thing that would have bested it is the, uh, you know, kind of like the, the Kirk double hand smack that... Uh, yeah, that Big, big hammer blow, absolutely. Yeah, dude, that's the only thing that kills a lizard man. Yeah. Um, later, we see the uh, forensic team. They're checking the lizard man, but it seems he's actually just a regular human that somehow warped into being this lizard dude, complete with tiny hairs <laughs> on his hands that let him climb walls and stuff, but have also twisted them so they can't get prints. And gold darn it, we really just, you know, if we had known who this guy was before, we could have told you. What the hootin' heck is going on? But we can't, man. We're just tech judges, and uh, quite yeah, frankly, this is uh, – we just don't know. Yep. There, there, there don't seem to be any clues at all. We're just left wondering if this lizard, if lizard dudes or ones like this guy will ever strike again. 
And no. I'll let you know, Fox. Yeah. He will strike again in February 1989, though it won't be Dread handling that one, but instead, my buddy and yours, Judge Cassandra Anderson. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, I love yeah, that they be, come back. It's going to be real good. Yeah, we'll get some more explanation about this brainstem man Lizard guy. Lizard man. Absolutely. Got a good, good, a good conspiracy digression in there. I hope people enjoy those. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Next up. John Ridgway, our buddy from Summer Magic, is on art, and uh, yeah. Wagner's in, in the in the writing seat, and Dread is at the start of the comic for the first time in a long time, because I believe this one's all black and white, so they're just like, listen, we're just doing it. Um, so, this story is called Twister, and it looks like Super Surf 10 champion Jug McKenzie is visiting the cursed Earth outside Mega City 1 to where a bunch of uh, giant semi-permanent cyclones exist to be devil the area sky surfers. I feel like so many Twisted Sister jokes were missed at this point in time. Oh, man. Uh, I guess he is going to take it. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Jug has arrived to tame Twister Valley, and everybody else is pretty stoked, except, of course, for Judge Dredd, who's standing at the outskirts of the group. He hasn't forgotten how Jug kept him from arresting Chopper and, of course, wants revenge. And he is just really waiting as we are continually laid on thick that Wizard of Oz and definitely what our names are as criminals have nothing to do with the Wizard of Oz. If Jug sets foot in Mega City 1, he's going down. Meanwhile, a quartet of jerks are looking on, clearly up to no good. Uh, they Started knock making out a trouble guy. in the neighborhood. Yeah. They knock out a guy who steals his hoverboard, and then <laughs> my mom got scared. Um, and we wouldn't do it twister. Yeah, as a camera crew sets up and tosses a cold one to Jug as he rides out to meet his fate. He flies, he flies on, uh, shooting the curl of the cyclone, holding his beard tightly in hand because he's a cool dude. Everyone cheers as Jug flies clear of the twister and even, even Dredd is impressed. But then he sees a pickup truck speeding towards the crowd <laughs> using his awesome cyber eyes. Never forget that he's got those. He sees the goons in the car, Linus X, Cyborg Frank, and Strawbrain. All of them wanted mm. for kidnap and murder related to the Ibex case, which is a sort of random case, I guess. They fled the city in April, but now they're after Mackenzie. They blast their way into the crowd, and Dredd goes to meet them. But as he does, he wonders where the fourth member of their gang, Raylan Silverboots, is. <gasps> and oh, that creeper's flying in on a hoverboard. Oh my god, how are we going to get him? I guess just shoot him? <laughs> yeah, he's flying in until Dredd shoots the board into pieces, and Silverboots falls seemingly to his death, at least being knocked out. The goons have taken Jug, but Dredd is in pursuit. And that wound on Jug's head means that Surfer might just have to go to the city for medical treatment, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Anyhow, that would be cool. But oh shit, there's a Twister! Oh my god. And much like the movie Twister, they all get caught up in it and learn a lot about how, you know, cyclones and just general Twisters work and nothing strange happens and no one gets hurt and no one gets transported to a magical land like, say... Oz. It seems Silver Boots is still alive as the Twister bears down on him and Dread. The lawman and his bike are picked up by the cyclone and thrashed around. At one point, Dread is pretty clearly hit in the back of his head by his bike <laughs> and comes crashing down with a clear crack in his helmet. Aw, dag. No one wants that helmet to open up because there's some weird shit underneath. That's right. Head leaking blood, he crawls to his knees. <laughs> Oz, they got the whiz. Drock. I don't think I'm in Twister Valley anymore. Whoops, it's way too colorful here for his liking. 
And suddenly Dredge in full color being greeted by Munchkins. They congratulate him on killing the Wicked Witch. And that's why he's now wearing silver boots. Oh, dang. Because <laughs> it can't to find be the... ruby slippers, huh? Well, and because that one one it's member of the gang boots. was called Silver Boots. Yeah, 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 yeah you yeah. got it. Um, anyway, he needs to find the wizard. Um, he's just been taken away by the Scarecrow, who saw brain, the Tin Man, Cyborg Frank, and the Cowardly Lion, Linus X. He's starting to put it together real quick. Yeah, they're headed for the Emerald City, and Dredge has to follow the Yellow Brick Road. Yeah, and luckily there's, uh, you know, a whole road of yellow bricks where yeah. people encounter a series of people to shoot and or apprehend. Definitely, yeah, and th- and this is the uh, the first full color dread in the pages of the progs. We've had some, of course, in annuals and specials and stuff. Ten out of um, ten, IMO. It's a great way to do it, just with this tr- Wizard of Oz thing. Exactly you Exactly know? correct. So Joe is headed down the yellow brick road as he randomly um, su- suddenly dodges a, a gunshot. This, it's the Scarecrow. It's saw. It's Straw Brain. As we figured, you know, he's hiding out a cornfield. But Dread knows the solution of that and shoots him incendiary rounds in there because crows hate fire. I mean, I, I do too, but whatever. I mean, um, and quite frankly, to set like corn socks on fire is not a hard deal. Indeed. Strawbrain runs out shooting in flames and Dread caps him right in the head. Dumb place to hide, but I guess he did have straw for brains. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't set that dude on fire, quite frankly. I mean, but, was, you know. I mean, you know, I feel like killing someone by setting them on fire as opposed to flushing them out, that feels like a little much. I'm um, just saying, you could have said, your move, hotshot. He would have said, what? He would have said, I said, hotshot. <laughs> I love that movie. Or you kill him and say, oh, he's a little hot under the collar. Oh. <laughs> um, so more shots ring out up above and Dread responds with some high X trapping the Tin Man or Cyborg Frank under a bunch of rocks. What's the matter? All rusted up. Oh, God. And then he tries rocks. to stick him, which like, come on, man. Yeah. Dread uh, sh- uh, shifts rocks to help the Cyborg up. But when the Tin Smith comes up with a club, Dread gives him a right to the gut and a left hand to the face and cuffs him. Tin Man won't give any more info about the wizard, so the pair of them walk down the yellow brick road, and afterwards, the Tin Man's going to be doing 60 years in the cubes. Rough. Real rough. (laughs) Don't mouth off to a judge. Seriously, next time, showdown at the Emerald City. Pretty good. I did not not enjoy it, and I love the setup for it going to color felt that that was like in the chamber ready to go kind of thing you know oh yeah but it it was a smart way to do it that everyone would have been like oh i get that i get that yeah next week we'll um we'll uh we'll conclude this story and like um like the first part of this story or or the second part i guess that's gonna have like a little bit of color but then sort of be wrapped up in black and white Mm. but from here on out i'd say like uh, unless some very specific reason for it not to be Dread's going to be in full color. Like the I rest think of that's the... that's a pretty neat thing. Personally. Yeah, we'll talk about we'll talk some more about the mechanics of it next uh, n- next Prague episode because there are some kind of interesting things about it. Absolutely, arise. But uh, speaking of uh, things that are perhaps less impressive, Fox. Uh. Thrill for tribal memory. Thrill about Peter Milligan, art about Tony Wright as Riot, learning about Jack Potter. I will try to say as few things as possible until the end of this, Conrad. Please continue. Okay. 
Mo Robinson has brought a Maasai warrior to a distant planet in the far future with designs uh. of brain of draining his memories and selling them to the memory-hungry populace. <sighs> the warrior is more comfortable with the aliens that live on this strange planet. How strange. But the encampment like they're trying that to say something. Been, indeed. The encampment he's been staying at is... <laughs> you, you always say, I'm going to wait till the end. And then, you keep, <laughs> then you interrupt me the most in those That's, situations, Fox. That is exactly the reason why, because I hate this. <laughs> Like on the other end of the spectrum, you did the same thing with skids. I just did the col- I just collected did the collection for that, and a similar thing happened. <laughs> but it was something we liked. Um, but so the the alien encampment has just been attacked by a giant monster, the Gukoto, or just the Koto. Maybe I can't tell. Hi, but, uh, who knows? The, who cares? Who cares? The, the Maasai has gone to fight it. He may not win, but he can fight. And apparently this is pretty similar to a Maasai ritual where a warrior grabs a lion's tail before killing it as part of a of an adulthood ritual. I feel like that's pretty dangerous, but sure. Well, I mean, that's that's the point. It, 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 is that it's dangerous? Uh, <laughs> the Maasai seems to be doing a similar thing with the Gokoto and manages to slay it as well. All right. The Maasai is feeling pretty great, but Mo is really grossed out by this. Uh, he says, like, like, barbarism. And the Maasai is like, dude, like, you brought me here because of you want to sell my barbarism, jerk. Um, pretty soon a police. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I said pretty, pretty on the level with that one. Yeah. Soon a police officer warns Mo that the, the Maasai is angering the local aliens and suggests getting rid of the warrior, but quick. The Maasai heads back to the native settlement as Mo goes to a society party, where his accountant pressures him to sell the memories as other other people trade racist jokes about the alien natives. Lol. And I guess the Maasai has worked his um, savage ways on Mo, and later when he and the um, he and the Maasai are walking home, they see some cops harassing. An alien native, and Mo seems to understand when the Maasai grabs a spear and kills these cops with awesome moves. I mean, just in general, don't kill cops, but also, like, what the fuck with this goddamn story? (laughs) (laughs) Mo now knows that everything is over. The law will be coming for them soon. The Maasai knows this, too. He 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 may not win, but he can fight. And we see that he's put on some ceremonial garb and is prepared to meet his fate. Sure. <laughs> the Maasai, again, in this ceremonial clothing, heads to the native settlement to meet the law as Mo tries to talk to his lawyer. But it seems he's be, you know he's now a persona non grata with the law. Mo goes to the Maasai and tries to get him to turn himself in. But the Maasai knows that this whole idea is laughable. Like, he'll just kill him. He tries to turn himself in, basically. So he might as well go down fighting. Mo tries to apologize for all this, but um, to the Maasai, but the warrior is above it all. He's ready to fight against the lawmen, and we see a whole platoon of them arrive in riot gear, demanding that Mo turn over the Maasai to hit to them. We see a ton of natives show up as well, and tensions are extremely high. In you know, as a as a warning, one of the officers fires off a shot, but. The bullet traveling upward catches a native standing on a rooftop and kills him. Uh, falls off the side, and the the um, response to this child being killed is a uh, riot breaks out. Yep. The aliens are chanting the word Uhuru, which uh, is the Maasai word meaning freedom we, we learned last episode. Soon it's a full-scale uprising, the natives fighting and killing the cops, and one of them shoots the Maasai in the chest. Oh, boy. Not great. Right through his shield. Soon, um, we see Mo is taken before a court. 
He's basically he's threatened the status quo of the of the uh, of the planet. The aliens have started fighting back to win their freedom from these slavers, which Mo himself uh, includes himself within, despite his own uh, personal eth- ethnic heritage. Um, offered a choice between prison or exile, Mo takes the long route and soon finds himself on the African plane on Earth, where he meets the Maasai alive and bandaged, because it seems they've kept him alive rather than allowed him to become a martyr by killing or imprisoning him. And now Mo's just going to chill out and kill some dang old lions out here on the plains. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, Conrad. (laughs) The end end of tribal memories. Oh, boy. Does this end like... (laughs) I mean, ah, you're out of touch. I don't know. I don't know how else to go 80s on this and still remain funny. It's the same thing we've been saying for a while, but like, oof. And also, oh, and also, whoa, yeah. why, why did you do this? You didn't need to. Yeah, I mean, generally, this just seems like a lot of like, um, it's like it's it's basically a like like magical black person story, sort of multiplot, like like plus of uh, the gods must be crazy, plus oh god, like, um, no, like strange days or something like that, just for yeah. some sort of cyber stuff. But like, like the math, the, math, the math's real clear, and it's one of these things where I could def like you know, I could definitely see writing like putting this story together in 1988 and being like, yeah, man, I'm gonna have a story, and it's gonna star this African dude, and it's gonna be about uh, simplifying and not being part of like the uh, the workaday world in modern times, and it's gonna be just about how we can learn from these more uh, simple people that are connected to the land or whatever. But I, I mean, I think that. Okay, is there a problem? And, then, it, and then you're like, oh, and then I'll, I'll like, I'll like, I'll like heighten the contradictions by having the main character also be like, like a black guy in the future who's like connect, disconnected from his heritage <sighs> and stuff, you know. And I'll sort of like just talk about how like these uh, people I see as primitive or are, are way more connected to the land and nature, and I'll heighten that by making all of the uh, all of the uh, 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 quote like a civilized people be like you know have all them share all their memories and have their their culture be bastardized by various different influences and stuff like that. There's just there's a lot, there's a lot here. There's a lot going into it, but I think it like just um you know it's one of these things where this feels extremely 1988 to me. You know, it feels like the purest of intentions executed with the precision of like a hammer for yeah. I don't know, like nothing resembling a nail. Because I've seen this story, honestly, I feel like this has happened from time to time. There's like, I I think in America, this would be like a Native American character, you know, this idea of someone that like works really hard and they kind of meet like a First Nations person that, um, you know, because of their um, dances with wolves. Yeah, kind of, but just like because they're sort of not white, and we see we see them as having this like primitive connection to the land that might be greatly oversimplifying what their actual like spirituality and beliefs are and stuff like that, and then uh-huh. having them only exist to sort of enrich the life of the uh, of the white person, this sort of like anti-white savior narrative or something like that. I don't know. I I um, just I I feel like, and this is not entirely accurate given why they made it but i feel as though it did a better job even in the latter years of of um the secondary comic but harlem heroes is a better story right like mm. because it, i mean i think they're 
they're they're they're different, honestly, just because in Harlem Heroes, yes. that's just about characters. That like, I mean, this is sort of not yes, the, you know, it's like, just like, about <laughs> characters as opposed to just about fucking race. Although the Harlem yeah. part of that does sort of shit on it, the characters themselves are not like these stereotypes that have to be explored. If that makes sense. Right. Or at least they're stereotypes that exist on their own as opposed to being specifically there to like, like, if they're like, like, because Home Heroes would be totally different if it was some kind of Mighty Duck situation. Oh, sure. Their manager was some white guy from the city and all the, and all the Harlem Heroes taught him a lesson about oh, something. Oh, God. You yeah. If I mean? it was a Jamaican bobsled <laughs> team, you would feel like maybe this was a bad movie to make. Right. And it's just kind of like, like, um, again, like, I feel like Tribal Memories has its heart in the right place. But, you but, know, and maybe, but it's one of these things where this is, feels like a very 1988 kind of thing that in the harsh light of 2019 feels very misplaced and, and uh, not that great. Like, just like, um, you know, something that should be sort of left to, to its own time period is what I want to say. Sure. This is the final work for Tony Wright in the Prague and Peter Milligan will be back in February of 1989 for Swifty's return. Uh, oh, Swifty. Yeah, it's gonna be sort of a longer, like, like, like not just single page kind of thing. Just kind of have some more All time right. travel adventures. I'm into with that. Vicky Swift. Yeah. And, hey, speaking of uh, teens hanging around in sci-fi situations, Fox. Oh, I'm into that. <laughs> Thrill five haphazard. Oh man, he's getting into another uh, haphazardy situation. He's gonna That's right. deliver a car. <laughs> Uh, script robot Steve Dillon, art robot Steve Dillon, letter robot John Aldrich, and in a move that can only mean, hey, we got to fill five pages before our big oh, relaunch. Steve, Tell what do you got? It. Um, it's more haphazard. Sure, why not? <laughs> We're on Fred's planet where Hap has has to go has to get to work or something, but his uh, "Where's Earth Anyway" T-shirt is drying out on the space line. And man, oh man, is she just gonna to rethink their living situation? <laughs> Hey everyone, Conrad here. At this point in our recording, Fox's audio cut out. I've been trying for a week to try to get this working again, but no dice. And sadly, we just don't have time to re-record this rest of the episode. So I'm going to take over and just fly solo for the rest of this one. Thanks for understanding. So continuing with Haphazard. His wears earth anyway shirt is drawing on the line, uh, but Hap's his girlfriend uh, Sharon gives it to him. He's got to go, but he'll meet her at the Kango Club at 10. Hap runs out and meets his buddy Tricky just as a sweet stretch hover limo shows up with Earth registration. Inside, our buddies Ron and Luigi Kango, the uh, two gangsters with uh, that, that uh, have a common head and body, um, are sitting there with a goon from Earth called Mr. Smith. The Kango twins want Ron, um, sorry, the Kango twins want Hap and Tricky to pick up a car from the spaceport and tosses them the keys, then they speed off. The, ma- the mafia types wonder if anything could go wrong as the lads arrive at the spaceport and notice a bunch of high-class cops in the area. It seems the body of gangster Luca Santelli is being shipped here for burial. He died awaiting trial for murder. The guys spot that Mr. Smith um, spot that Mr. Smith guy on the landing pad by the mobster ship, but don't worry, it's probably not related. They grab the hover car and take off. But on the way there, they try to play some tunes and the tape deck just makes a bunch of screeching noises. So they toss the tape that was in there and replace it with one from Johnny Trauma and the Maladjusteds. 
On the way home, they get hassled by the cops, but the officers don't find anything, and they arrive at the Kango Club without further incident. The Kango twins rip out the dashboard and hand it to a science-type guy. They don't want to keep Lucas Santelli waiting. It seems the gangster got his mind downloaded before he died, and it's in that dashboard, I guess? Possibly in that tape they tossed out the window? Anyhow, later we learn that uh, Mr. Smith killed the science guy when Santelli came back to life singing Johnny Trauma songs and was then sent to jail because of it. And the Kango twins had already been paid, so they don't care that much. And in fact, they made some extra money by selling Santelli to the Braxians as a living jukebox. Woo! Ah, <laughs> oh, slavery is always fun and haphazard will return in January of 1989. And you know, while we're talking about uh human beings with extraordinary powers, let's let's move on to Thrill 6 Zenith. Script robot Grant Morrison, art robot Steve Yole, letting robot Mark King. Zenith is back on top. That's a pun. Uh, we're in Sydney, Australia, December 31st, 1987. The distant past for us here in August 1988. Some folks are walking around admiring that this giant Art Deco city apparently rebuilt after the big wave in 1971, which I don't think we had in our reality, to be frankly. Uh, apparently, we're enjoying New Year's in a parallel universe, and one of the people we're enjoying it with is Ruby Fox, the former flower child superhero from our last Zenith series. She's enjoying people not recognizing that she has powers, and one of her former Cloud Nine cohorts is there too and looks exactly the same as when they were teenagers. They talk about alternate realities and when they should tell uh, Zenith about all this, though Ruby's more worried about Peter Sinjin, who, as he saw these dimensional travelers during Shadwell's funeral uh, at the end of phase one, he might be planning something no matter what the threat of the Omnihedron is, whatever that might be. Indeed, whatever the problem um, is, they have a year until it matters, they're staying, they're staying here for a few more weeks because this reality never had superhumans, and it's a great place to hide out from the Ligor, at least until the alignment, again, whatever that is. <laughs> We're, they're headed to the circus, which isn't clowns and stuff. It's actually dudes fighting T-Rexes with assault rifles. Whoa! It's basically bullfighting in this reality, and this might be the last time they ever do it. Look to the future, ring out the old, and ring in the new. So that was the prologue, and now we're on to Zenith, Phase 2. It's February 3rd, 1988, and Zenith is getting a message on his machine as he gets heckled by a cab driver. He sings The Queen is Dead by the Smiths as the voice on the machine tells him to get out of his apartment now. When the superpowered teen gets to his apartment, he checks his messages. He's, there's ones, he's dodging from Jane and Emma. Eddie, his manager, is calling him, it seems, um, and says that his, uh, his single is top 20 in the state, so it's time to start planning a U.S. tour. And he also wishes him a happy birthday as Zenith starts to draw a bath. Finally, the warning message comes on as Zenith answers the door and gets tossed across the room with a chud. Um, whatever hit him is now looking at him with some kind of predator vision. It's a big scary robot bearing down on him. Next time, a slight case of murder. Just fun setting stuff up for Zenith, you know, a little bit of like what the heck is going on, alternate reality stuff, and then just starting with a big uh, robot beating. Always appreciate 
a robot beating. But speaking of uh, killing people all over the place, let's jump to Thrill 7 Slain. Script robot Pat Mills, art robot Glenn Fabry, uh, no letting robot list listed. Slain, he's a king, and he's he and he's leading his tribesmen to battle against the Fomorian Sea Devils, Skyclad, aka Naked. The boys run into fight as their wives and children look on and heckle their fighting, which is pretty funny. Among them is Uko, our buddy, taking a very aggressive narration role as well. We see like he's now directly narrating the story as a uh, as a tale teller. We see the Earth Goddess Bloodwed looking on as they rush into battle. The thought of his godly wife inspires Slain to warp spasm, and without a hero harness and with her love, he expands to gigantic proportions, um, becoming a giant being of muscle and sinew and terrifying veins. Just amazing work by Glenn Faber here. With one swing, Slain can kill 30 Fomorians. He doesn't think of too many. We see Bloodwed, the Earth Goddess... Turn into Morgu, the hoodie crow goddess of war. At the same time, the Formorian leaders are being led to the cauldron of blood slash plenty, where their throats are opened into the pot as the death goddess Sertowin, um drinks it along with her son Avigdu. They bicker a bit, and it seems that Avigdu has designs on Bloodwed, the, uh, the uh, earth goddess, but that's all very hypothetical at this point. Later, all the Cessera warping and fighting the Fermorians. It's pretty gross as the three aspects of the Earth Goddess look on. The goddesses mock humanity and men generally. They don't know anything and their deaths will aid the goddesses. But the druids then summon a giant flying death serpent out of Earth energy. And here's where we're seeing some overlap of Mills's work um, between this and the Worm Goddess discussed in ABC Warriors. Is this sort of concept of the of a, of a great worm as being part of the uh, of the Earth Goddess, sort of a superior force to male energy, essentially, uh, or maybe a, a, a counterbalancing force might be a better term. The enemy is vanquished and the boys are headed home, but Slane's unhappy. He needs to kill more Fomorians to make up for what they've done to his wife, the Earth. He won't be happy until he's waded neck deep in gore. He calls a conclave in his great round hall. And here we see the top warriors of the tribe. There's 12 of them, including Slane and Uko as the, war as the royal parasite. Though one of them is Neve, the, uh, the cat who, is just, who, who left the tribe at the start of Slane the King. The rest also have Zodiac names and includes uh, Slane's foster father, Mongan Axehead. But I'm not really going to name them all because I don't know how much this part matters, really. Like, we will be ending Slane the King very soon and kind of rebooting a lot of this once the Horn God starts. But still, come back next week when Slane develops a plan. And speaking of plans, it looks like mine have gone awry as uh, in my effort to jump ahead doing solo hosting, I've managed to jump straight over non-thrills, covers, and nerve centers. Prog 587, Law vs. Claw. Barry Kitson draws Dread in trouble in a very seltzery cl uh, uh, cover. Because you aren't above the law when you've got the claw. In the nerve center, Tharg's extremely pumped for Prog 589. Can't stop talking about it. There are pictures of a mutant slayer with an overbite, a strontium dougal complete with helmet, and then letters include a fellow reading his progs in Papua New Guinea and a reader whose wife loves the cruel heart. Mid-prog 
There's a column called Bits by Steve May and is about computer and video games, my favorite. It seems the new 8-bit machines are coming out in England, as well as the games like Gauntlet 2 and Starfleet, as well as the Three Stooges and Rocket Rangers games, and a version of Dragon's Lair that uses a laser disc player. Prog Ents, the pinup of Danny Franks, from from a raw to a scream, and it's by an artist named Mikasso, who I believe this might be his only 2080 work. Next, Out of Africa, the Maasai looking pretty realistic in this cover by Brendan McCarthy and Tony Red. I think it's pretty nice. Tharg remains high on Prog 589, which will have a sweet, glossy cover to say nothing of Zenith Phase 2 and a slain miniseries. There are pictures of a buff alien Judge Zote and a Durham Red-looking Strontium Cat. Letters ask if there will be four Zenith books, and Tharg confirms it. A mom is really enjoying Slain, and another letter asks about an upside-down panel in 582, but I'm pretty sure that that thing look, just looks upside-down because it's from the perspective of a then-upside-down min-faced McNulty. Like, he's, like, tied by his feet to a tree, so things look, you know, they look upside-down from, from what he's seeing. Mid-prog, I'm semi-pissed because the entire color spread is just an ad for 589 with the words more in different colors with Zenith, Dread, Slain, and Nemesis in the, in the letters. With Tharg, as the explanation point, I want some narrative in that color. The prog ends with the full-page color ad for the Masters of the Universe movie, now on home video. All right. Prog 589, more color, more pages, more thrill power. Simon Bisley draws dread fighting some goblin mutants with a log, with the words lawgiver written on its very large gun. It's also more expensive. 2000 AD is the progs up to 35 cents. It's been 30 since the start of the year, less than nine months since the last price increase. In the nerve center, Tharg is drawn by Brett Ewins and looking just to the right and um, giving us a wink. Tharg welcomes us to the prog with a description of the thrills within the comic and a mention that, um, th- that this has now four, four more color pages. There's no letters this week, as we're also going over the concept of the prog, you know, explaining different Beetlejuicean thri- um, words and things like that. Someday we'll be Krill-Trothargos, Kril- Fox, I promise. Mid-prog, there are ads for some sweet VHS tapes, including Leonard Six and a character preview for Moonrunners. Mid-prog is a full-page color ad for the stories in Crisis, Third World War by Pat Mills and Carlos Escara, and New Statesman by John Smith and Jim Bakey. Um, after another giant forbidden planet ad, we end the prog with a pinup by 2080 newcomer Chris Weston with dread jumping out of a law book, scattering like words and letters and just ripped up pages everywhere. It's a really awesome pinup. Prog 590, Zenith's back! Check out the Z in this iconic cover when you see a lot when you're talking Zenith. And indeed, I believe it's the first Zenith cover that's actually by Steve Yole. Um, in the returning nerve center, Tharg warns that your thrill circuits may, uh, or, um, yeah, Tharg warns that your, ne- that your thrill circuits may be near red, but we must press on even if thrill power overload threatens. There are pictures of a psycho droid and Torquemada the judge. I'm watching you creep. There are letters continuing to ask about Tharg's musical tastes and noticing that Tyranny Rex's recent stories had the names of Talking Head songs, which I also noticed. Other letters are confused by Bad Company and Tharg is very patronizing in the answer. Another letter compliments adult stories like Revolution and Bad Company, but complains that the letters' pages are crappy, which is just a total burn on himself because you're in, you're soaking in the letters' pages, man. Come on, get out of here. Uh, but as we 
do some introspective. Let's do some excitement. Let's uh, look at things from a different perspective ourselves as we go to Thrill 8, Rogue Trooper. Script robot for Rogue Trooper, Steve Dillon. Art robot, Steve Dillon. Lettering robot, John Aldridge. More Steve Dillon writing here, which really feels like we're just sort of, you know, battening down the hatches to try to get ready for the uh, for the relaunch at 589. Um Blue infantrymen rogue troopers nearing another target. This one is known as the Prof, working on a secret project. Gunners just stoked for action. And this one's, this story is called Through the Eyes of a Gun. The sentient weapon kills two of the guards, or kills two guards on the roof, then fires a grappling hook to the building so Rogue can zip line in. Uh, Rogue then smashes through a window and, um, the soldier and chip just start blasting away fools like nobody's business. The goons eventually give up the prof and Rogue bursts in on them, but the scientist makes them an offer, let them live and they'll regrow their bodies. Gunner doesn't want to shoot, but the scientist then comes up with a machine pistol and kills Helm, Pagman, and Rogue. Oh no! Rust in peace indeed. All Gunner can do is scream Reno until he wakes up because it was all a dream. Rogue doesn't think it's possible for Chips to dream, and Gunner just seems resigned. He's just a gun now, sadly. Whatever, that's it for now. Uh, Rogue Trooper will be back in Frog 598 for a hit four. You know, just more workaday action, doing things pretty regularly with Rogue, I guess. But if we're going to talk about daily schedules, then we got to talk about Thrill 9, The Daily Dreads. Script robot John Wagner and Alan Grant, art robot Ian Gibson, letter robot Tom Frame. More dread. No waiting. It's time for daily dreads. Um, you know, Fox has managed to avoid most of these daily dread strips so far by not doing specials or annuals for a while. But recently we've been seeing these daily dread strips come in from the Daily Star newspapers, taking the place in the specials and annuals of the uh, larger Saturday strips. Um now these dailies are also coming to the progs again, possibly as a result of a production problem, I guess. Or just because it's an easy source of content if you just need to jam in some pages. In the Dread Mega Special and the two annuals, we've seen the first three Daily Dread storylines, two with art by Ron Smith and one by Ian Gibson, and we're continuing with Ian Gibson now with the Mean Machine story, which ran from October to December 1986. Uh, the story starts with some essential facts about the Dread newspaper strip. It's been running for seven years, with many artists contributing. Let's dive on in! At a megacity ISO block, Mean Machine Angel is being brought in for psychosurgery to remove his violent tendencies, but he's not going quietly. He's on two at balking everything in sight. The doctors are trying to sedate him when Dread rolls in and Mean goes up to four. He tries to butt, but Dread just trips him and goes right into the floor, and then Dread judo, ch- judo tosses him into a wall. They sedate the knocked-out Mean Machine, and Dread gives the careless doctor three years for endangering everyone. As Mean is carried out, a car looks on, and inside is the rest of the Angel Gang! They gun down Mean's judicial escort and and grab the cybernetic Bakker. Um, they seem to be in good form as Junior Angel just starts gunning folks down for no good reason, and Dread's call to the scene. It's total carnage, and Mean Machine is missing. The attackers were the Angel Gang, but that can't be, because they're dead. And Dread says, I know. I killed them. <laughs> More exciting Daily Dread action coming up next issue. And speaking of coming to the end of episodes, it's Thrill 10, Future Jocks. 
couple future shocks here, including at least one reprint. First up, we got Teamwork. Script robot Steve Dillon, art robot Nigel Dobbin, letting robot Mark King, future shock. This is the second thing um, written in Prog 588 by Steve Dillon, the first time in the Prog for Nigel Dobbin, who will go on to draw a bunch of stuff in the Progs, including some er- uh, some early to mid-90s Strong Team Dogs and the upcoming Medivac 318. He also did a lot of work for the UK Sonic the Hedgehog comics as well, especially doing work for the character Knuckles. Sadly, he died in August of this year, which is, of course, a bummer. Rest in peace. In London, um, the war was over, but now it's a fight among survivors in a radioactive hellscape. A survivor clad in a heavy helmet and and with a combat rifle looks for supplies, talking to their partner, Chris. Apparently, Chris can sense people and tells the survivor if a store is safe for looting. They run in, find some stuff, but then Chris senses some armed mutants outside. The survivor gets the drop on them, and Chris warns them that another one's sneaking up. Good teamwork! The survivor escapes with some canned goods, and as as they talk to Chris, it's hard out there in the radiated future, and they and Jim used to be a great team here in the city, but the survivor, she takes off her helmet, it's a lady, and Chris will be even better now, because it turns out that Chris is a baby still growing in her womb! Whoa! Psychic helper baby! (laughs) Next up, Careless Talk, script robot John Gatehouse, art robot Glenn Dillon, learning robot Johnny Aldrich, uh, tangential Steve Dillon action here as Steve's brother Glenn, or, or Glenn maybe, draws draws this one with a Y, I should say. Um, Jerry Anderson has always been a loser until he goes to see about his dole money and learns that suddenly everything he says happens literally. He makes himself sick, then makes the employment guy drop dead. Mad with power, he creates a giant castle for himself and turns the government guy that tries to stop him into a worm. He even sends the army that comes after him to hell. Things go bad, though, when he says sticks and stones will break his bones. But other than that, it's good times. Yep, things are going like a bomb. And then suddenly everything blows up. Careless talk costs lives. A lot of of air horns in the solo version, I must say. Next up, The Big Clock, script robot Alan Moore, art robot Eric Bradbury, letting robot Pete Knight. Classic throw power from the archives here, first seen in Prog 315, our episode 97, Time. Wow, man, time. We know it's wibbly-wobbly and that it keeps slipping into the future, but for real, what's the deal with time? Well, let's head to The Big Clock in the center of eternity to find out. We meet Mr. Arthur Seck, the foreman, and he shows us around a big silly factory of time puns. There's miners here pulling time, raw time that gets refined by the three weird sisters, sorted into good times, bad times, and even salad days. And there's a lot of other stuff. There's tense seconds and depression years, a time forecast that ensures that boring stuff takes forever, but fun stuff is over quickly, and a guy in charge of, remember, of remembering everything who gets distracted and forgets where everyone's pen is. It ends when Sek realizes he hasn't turned the big mainspring today, and he runs to turn it to turn to turn it again as time grinds down to. A stop. Finally, Casualty. Script robot Hilary Robinson, art robot Jim McCarthy as Mez Mazzaro, and letting robot Johnny Aldrich. 
Uh, second Future Shock in, in Prague 590, poor showing. But it's interesting because this is the first time in the Prague for Hilary Robinson, who will be seeing a ton of for the next hundred Prague's or so. And unless you count Angie Mills' Kincaid uh, writing Slain a few episodes ago, which just had a lot of, uh, what you call it, like a lot of visuals, not a lot of actual words, I do believe that Robinson is the uh, first real female, or, or is... Of the, if not the first and the second female writer credit in 2000 AD, she's about to do a ton of stuff. Also, it's cool to see Jim McCarthy doing some solo work here, as he usually works with Brett Ewan's Inking Bad Company, and you can see some Bad Company elements in his art style here. And this is just a fun little story about war being hell. Um, on a future battlefield, a wounded soldier calls for a medic, but when a medbot comes, he just uh, he asks for a drink. So the medbot instead calls uh, leaves and calls for a drink spot. And when the drink spot comes, the wounded soldier asks for water, but it can only dispense Neo-T, Synthicaf, and Coke substitute. So it calls for a tank wash bot, which does have water. The uh, the, the tank wash bot um, offers a wash and wax, but the man now wants painkillers. So the tank bot calls the medic again. And by the time the medic arrives for a second time, the soldier has died. Some, war is hell, but sometimes the aftermath isn't much better. And that's it for Thrills this episode. Um, I, I don't have an exact record, but um, for top and bottom Thrills, I know Fox and I both agree that we had tribal memories at our bottom. It was definitely a story that didn't do it for us, I must say. I feel like we've talked about it quite a bit and no re- reason to get into it further. Um, from what I can tell, again, it's very much sort of just listening to me responding to Fox's conversation, but I think he had Nemesis at the top, and I disagreed just because I found this era of Nemesis to be very confusing, even in our original audio, kind of talked about how, um... The initial switch, like, I remember being very confused about who, about how much time was passing in this comic with Torquemada's actions, like, is... Belly shirt at the university cafeteria, Torquemada, the same person as the, uh, colonel with the, with the checkerboard shoulder pads, um, head of the Oi Boys, Torquemada. Like, it, you know, with a closer reading, it clearly is, but I found those to be so dissonant in my initial reading that I found this, I started to get this story be very confused about what the timeline was. So just kind of lose some points for me. Uh, for my top, it was Dread. I, I really liked both the, uh, the brainstem story, just this crazy lizard running through Mega City One, Dread going toe to toe with it. And then, um, just this first part of the Over the Rainbow story. It's a fun way to bring full color Dread into the comic, you know, just the way you th- they do in movies, this initial thing, uh, based on the Wizard of Oz and just sort of, you know, allowing there to be a really bright, colorful episode of Dread with silly movie references and munchkins and so forth, which we can then go forward with more exciting Dread stories. And, you know, I think John Ridgway is an interesting Dread author as well. I think he's got a really cool style that really helps with, does well with a, with, with a more fanciful Dread story, I guess is what I want to say. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show, and I'm really sorry for this solo Connor Ed part at the end. I don't like flying solo any more than you like to listen to it, I, I promise you. I'm trying to avoid this in the future. 
Anyway, so I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Space Spinner 2000 on iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site at spacespinner2000.com. Feel free to contact us at spacespinner2000 at gmail.com on the 2080 forums or on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages on Twitter. We're at Space Spinner 2K for everything else with Space Spinner 2000. You should find us there. Come back next week as we... Um, as we reach the final episode of 2019, the Moonrunner set up business. PJ maybe checks in for his birthday. Xanath is headed to Scotland. Nemesis and Torquemada are in the club, fighting to the death, and Chopper returns for revenge. Until then, I'm Conrad. I promise Fox is out there, and we are Space Spinner 2000. Splendid Birthrig! Flying cows everywhere. Hey, hold on just a second, Fox. I'll be right back. Please do. Mm-hmm. Drock. Dang. Uh, Could have made a twister joke, like the old board game, kind of like people game twister, you know, where you spin the thing and the next person has to put a limb on like a color. Could have made that joke. Um, Said twisted sister. What else is there? Uh, Purple nurples. It's like kind of a twister. Um, native burn, like where you rub your hands in the opposite directions of each other when you grab your friend's, uh, you know, forearm. Uh, guess that's kind of fucked up. What else is there a twister like? I got nothing. It's not so many, not so many twister jokes, I feel like. Subscribe if you enjoy twister-related humor. Twisties? It's like a thing. It's like a candy. Oh, Twizzlers is what I'm thinking of. You know, that's a good one. Push pops. That has nothing to do with twisters. I just like push pops because they're lollipops you push up. Um, Poland peels. Don't know if you had those in the in the UK. Uh, there was also uh, along the same lines of the board game or limb Uh-oh. game twister. Oh, hello. <laughs> Hi. How are you? Oh, geez, you have a big twister diatribe in there, Fox. Yeah, but there's not a lot of twister commentary that you can give. <sighs>